Masech's Oro Perek Gimel Mishnah Tesson from Masech's Bekurim Perek Aleph Mishnah Gimel. The last Mishnah of the Masechta discusses where exactly the prohibition of Orla applies, and also what is the status exactly of Orla, which is only a doubtful Orla. For example, if you buy fruit from somebody who has Orla trees and non-Orla trees in his field, and he sells you some fruit and you're not sure whether the fruit that he's selling you is from the Orla trees or the non-Orla trees. And let's say it's a non-Jew, so you're not able to find out which trees they're from, because perhaps the non-Jew is not so careful to know which trees are the Arla ones. So the Mishnah says, Sefeik Arla, fruit which is doubtfully Arla, it's possibly Arla, it's possibly not. So but Eretz Yisrael, in Eretz Yisrael itself, Osir, it's forbidden to benefit from even doubtful Arla, because of a basic principle that Sofik Midaraisa Lechumra, a doubtful case when it comes to a Torah law, is ruled stringently, so since Orla inside of Eretz Yisrael is forbidden mid Araisa, even a doubtful case is also ruled stringently and therefore forbidden. Over Surya and in Surya, which refers to the lands on the outskirts of Eretz Yisrael, which David HaMelech conquered before conquering the whole of Eretz Yisrael itself, where the seven idolatrous nations lived, and at least according to this Mishnah, Surya is mid Araisa considered like Chutz Laaretz, just like any other country. However, Midrabonon, it has certain laws which apply just like in Eretz Israel. Now, when it comes to Orla, Surah is sort of in the middle. It's not quite considered like Eretz Israel, but at the same time, it does not have the laws of Chutzl Oretz Orla. But the mission says in a regular case of a doubtful Orla of a Surah Mutter, it is permitted to benefit from Orla which comes from Surah if it is a doubtful case. Now, in the rest of the countries in Chutzl Oretz, were even more lenient because of a Chutzl Oretz. In the rest of the countries outside of Eretz Israel, Yod Keach, one is even allowed to go down into a non-Jew's field and buy fruit from him, even though he has Orla trees in his field. And even though it's extremely likely that the fruit which he is selling you is from the Orla trees, you're still allowed to buy it from him or eventually you enulicate, as long as you don't see him take the fruit off an Orla tree, so there's still a slight possibility that it came from somewhere else, from a non-Orla tree. Even though it's very unlikely, we are extra lenient in Chutzl Aretz. And the reason for this is said at the end of the Mishnah, and that is that we have a Halacha Lemosha Messinai, a law which has been passed down since Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai. We've got a tradition that Orla applies not only in Eretz Yisrael, but also outside of Eretz Yisrael. It's one of the unusual cases where a law which concerns the ground and things which grow even applies outside of Eretz Yisrael. However, part of that tradition is that in a case of doubt, we are lenient if it's in Chutz Laaretz. So the same Halacha Moshe which teaches us that it applies outside of Eretz Yisrael, also teaches us that in a case of doubt, it does not apply outside of Eretz Yisrael. And that's why we can be so lenient, so even if it's a tiny doubt, one could still benefit from Ola of outside of Eretz Yisrael. Now the Mishnah goes on to discuss Gilea Kerem, for example, Kerem Atua Yorok, a vineyard in which vegetables are planted, so that's really the definition of Kilea Kerem, and we know it's forbidden to benefit from that, just like it's forbidden to benefit from Orla. So if you have a Kilea Kerem field, the Yorok Nimkar Chutzaloi, and vegetables are being sold right outside the field by the non-Jew who owns that field. So the Eretz Yisrael, in Eretz Yisrael itself, where it's forbidden mid Araisa to plant Klea Kerem, so Osur, it's forbidden even though you don't know as a fact that the vegetables here were grown in that Klea Kerem field. Since there's a possibility that it is, and quite a high possibility actually, it is forbidden to buy those vegetables because Sofik Deraisa the Chumra, a doubtful case when it comes to a Deraisa, a Torah law such as Klea Kerem in Eretz Yisrael, that is ruled stringently. On the other hand, of a Surya, in Surya, which is only obligated to Midrabonon in Klea Kerem, 
Mutter, it's permitted if it's sold outside of the field, since there it's only a doubt as to whether it came from that field. And Sovik de Rabbon Lakula, a doubtful case when it comes to a rabbinic law, is ruled leniently. Of the Chutz Laoretz, and in Chutz Laoretz itself, the only prohibition of Kleakon which applies outside of Eretz Yisrael is that Midrabbonon, it's forbidden to actually plant it yourself, or to pick it out of the ground yourself. But Yod Velikate, you're allowed to go down into the non-Jew's field, and the non-Jew will pick it off the ground. He'll harvest it right in front of you. As long as you don't pick it off the ground by hand, yourself, you're allowed to benefit from it. So you're allowed to even tell the non to pick it for you, because the only Midrabonon prohibition which applies outside of Eretz Yisra with regards to Kleakerem is the actual planting or harvesting it of it yourself. But if a non does it for you, then it is permitted to benefit from it. And now the Mishnah goes on to a third prohibition, and that is Hechadosh. Chodosh refers to the prohibition of eating new grain which grew that year before the carbon Omer was brought on the second day of Pesach. So any produce which took root since the previous Pesach, it's forbidden to eat that until this carbon is brought on the second day of Pesach. And the Mishnah says, Hechadosh Osum Makaim, this prohibition of eating the new produce is forbidden mid Araisa in every single place, even outside of Eretz Yisrael. The truth is, this is a machlekes elsewhere in Maseches Kedushin, but this Mishnah follows the opinion that the prohibition of Chodosh is exactly the same in every single place. This is learnt from the Posuk, which says that it applies in all of your dwelling places, implying even outside of Eretz Yisrael. The Orla, and the prohibition of Orla, as we explained earlier, Halacha, is a halach l'moshim Sinai. We have a tradition that it applies even outside of Eretz Yisrael, and as we explained, the tradition also tells us that in a case of a doubt, then it does not apply. And finally, ends off the Masechta of HaKilayim. And the fact that Kilea Kerem applies outside of Eretz Yisrael, Medivrei Sofrim, that's just Medirabonon, because the prohibition is so severe and it's even forbidden to benefit from Kilea Kerem, which comes from Eretz Yisrael. So Medirabonon, they extended that even to outside of Eretz Yisrael, as we explained earlier on in the Mishnah. Solik Maseches Orla. Gewaldig Mazeltov. Let us begin the final Masechta of Seder Zeroim, and this final Masechta contains three Perakim, although a fourth Perak was added on later on, but strictly speaking that is not part of the Mishnah. It was added on because it has a similar structure to the second Perak, and we'll look more into that when we get there. Now Bikurim refers to the obligation to bring the first ripening fruits of his trees to the Beis Hamikdash. So from every tree, the first fruit which ripen, he needs to bring to the Beis Hamikdash and ultimately give it to a Kohen. And just like Truma, only Kohenim can eat Bikurim. And the punishment for a non-Kohen who eats Bikurim intentionally is Misa Shomayim, death by the hands of Hashem. And before giving it to the Kohen, he does a process in the Beis Hamikdash in which he says many pesukim, and he thanks Hashem for bringing him to Eretz Yisrael, and for giving him all the produce, and that declaration and speech of his is called Mikro Bikurim, the pesukim which are read when bringing the Bikurim. Now, mid just like Truma, there is no minimum amount which has to be separated for the sake of Bikurim. One could technically bring just one fruit to the Beis Hamikdash and give it to a Kohen. However, mid one needs to take one-sixtieth of his produce, separate that as Bikurim, and give it to Koyanim. Now it's only in the third peric which we'll actually learn about how exactly the Bikurim was separated and what went on when he brought it to the Beis Hamikdash. But for now, the first peric discusses when exactly the obligation of Bikurim applies. For example, we're going to see that it only applies to the Shivas Haminim, the seven species for which the land of Eretz Yisrael is praised in the Torah. 
Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, oils and dates. It does not apply to any other fruits. And we're also going to see for whom it applies. Where does the produce have to grow in order for it to be obligated in Bikurim? And within all of this, we're also going to discuss who is obligated in the Mikra Bikurim. In the declaration and the thanks which accompanies the Bikurim. Because as the Masechta begins, Yesh Mavim Bikurim Bikurim. There are certain people who are obligated to bring Bikurim and to read the Mikra Bikurim when bringing it. But there are also others that are obligated Mavim to bring the Bikurim, but Velaykurim, they don't read the Mikra Bikurim when bringing it. And thirdly, Yesh Eno Mavim, there are also certain people who don't even bring the Bikurim at all. And that is the list which we will mention first. Elush Eno Mavim, the following people are those who will not bring Bikurim at all. And this is learned from the fact that the Torah says, The first fruit which ripen on your land, you shall bring to the house of Hashem, the Beit HaMikdosh. And we learn from there that only if all of the produce grows only on your land, and not on anybody else's land, only then is it obligated in Bikurim. And therefore, says the Mishnah, one who plants a tree in his own property, but then the Hivrich, he did the process of Havracha, and Havrachah refers to when somebody takes one of the branches of a tree or a plant and bends it downwards until it reaches the ground and then he puts it into the ground and he makes it go slightly below the ground and then he bends it again so that it grows horizontally along underneath the ground and after it's grown a bit underneath the ground he then brings it back up so he bends it so that it grows upwards vertically as a new tree and once it's grown quite a bit at a small distance away from the original tree it gets strong enough for it to survive itself and it's actually cut. The connection between that and the original tree is cut and this way he has basically planted a new tree from the original tree itself. Again, just from bending a branch into the ground and then out again at a small distance away. So if this person did that process of Havracha L'Seich Shal Yochid into another individual's property, so he brings up his second tree, as it were, in somebody else's property, even if he has permission to do so, it's still not his property. I shall rub him, or if he brings up the second tree in a public property, the same would apply to somebody who does this process of Havracha from an original tree which stands in somebody else's property, or in public property, and he brings it as a second tree into his property. So in all these cases, there's at least one of the two trees, which at this stage are still connected to each other, at least one of them is not growing in his own property. And the way it works is that both of the trees gain nourishment and nutrients from each other. So that means that ultimately both of the trees are gaining from another ground, which does not belong to him. And continues the Mishnah, even Hanutela Sir Shaloi, somebody who plants the original tree in his own property, and then the Hivricha Sir Shaloi, he does the process of Havracha, and brings up the second tree also in his property. However, the bit which grew underground in between these two trees was It was a private pathway or a public pathway in between the two trees and the branch which was connecting the two trees was growing underneath this pathway which did not belong to him. Since both of the trees are gaining nourishment from this middle branch as well, so in all these cases, the owner will not be obligated to bring Bikurim from there. Bikurim just doesn't apply to these trees, since the Torah says it only applies if they all come from Admos from your land. Now, Behuda argues on the last case. The last case is where both of the trees are planted in his own property. It's just that the branch which is underneath the ground in between the two, that is underneath a pathway which doesn't belong to him. So Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, 
In such a case, maybe he does bring Bikurim. And the reason for this is because we hooders of the opinion the one is allowed to do anything underneath somebody else's pathway, or even a public pathway, as long as he doesn't damage the actual pathway itself. He's not allowed to do it if it will make the pathway weaker, and it won't be able to stand heavy loads, but as long as he doesn't affect the actual pathway, he's allowed to do what he likes underneath the pathway. It's not really considered to belong to the owner of the pathway, and because of that Rabbi Huda views it as the owner of the trees, or at least it's considered to be your land, since you own the land on either side, and are totally allowed to build, to dig underneath that pathway, and so according to Rabbi Yehuda, that is considered to be your land. Now it's important to note that Rabbi Yehuda agrees that such a person would not be obligated to recite the Mikrobikurim. He does need to bring the Bikurim from those trees, but he doesn't say the Mikrobikurim in that case, and the reason for that is because one of those Pesukim says that he thanks Hashem for the ground Ashenosatoli, which you gave to me. Now, though he's totally allowed to plant underneath the pathway, and we do consider it in a way to be your land, it's nevertheless not true that Hashem gave him that land. To say that you gave me that land means it's literally mine, and I have ownership over it. So that even Rabbi Huda agrees is not the case, and therefore he cannot say Mikrabi Kurim. All Rabbi Huda was saying is that since he does not need permission to use the land underneath the pathway, it is still considered to be your land in some way, such that he does need to bring, bring Bikurim from those trees. Mishnah base. this Mishnah explains the reason for the exemptions in the previous Mishnah. What is the reason that he does not bring Bikurim from these trees? Because the Pesach says, The first of the fruit which ripen in your land, and that implies, You're only obligated if all of the growths come from your own land and your own ground, but if it's getting nourishment from other ground, then it would be exempt. Now the Mishnah lists a few more people who would be exempt from bringing Bikurim based on the fact that they do not own the ground on which their trees are planted. And the first one on that list is Harisin. An Oris is somebody who rents a field from somebody else, and he works that field. And the deal which he has with the owner of the field is that he will rent and do all of the work in the field, he'll take care of all the harvest as well, and from the final crop which comes from that year's harvest, the Oris will take a percentage of the crop which is produced that year and the owner will take the rest, and this refers to a choycher who is very similar to an oris, except that a choycher gives a fixed amount to the owner of the field as opposed to a percentage. So for a choycher it makes no difference how much that year's harvest produces, because he always gives a fixed amount to the owner. Whereas the amount which an oris and the owner of the field will get depends on how good that harvest is that year. So of course the Oris and the Cheche are just renting the field and working it, but they don't actually own the field. Third one on the list is Vahasik Rikain, which is the name for a murderer who would pretty much go up to people and say, your land or your life. So people would give them their land, obviously. However, when they give this person the land, they don't intend to give it with a full heart, and they don't relinquish their ownership of that field, because they know that since this person is doing something illegal, they'll take him to court, they'll manage somehow to get their land back. And therefore, even though they give him the land, their intention is not actually to give him the ownership of the land. And therefore, halachically, the Sikrikon does not own the land. The Hagazan and a regular person who steals land, although one who steals objects can, in some scenarios, become the owner of the object, when it comes to land, one who steals land does not become the owner, and therefore even if the thief or the people who rent the land do plant trees in that field, in Mavian they do not bring Bikurim e because of the same reason, Mishum Shanemar, because the Pasuk says, Reishis Bikuriyad Moscha, 
the first of your fruit to ripen from your land, those are the only ones which would be obligated in the Kurim. Mr. Gimel, one only brings Bikurim from the Shiva Saminim, from the seven different species from by which the land of Eretz Israel is praised, wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives and dates, and this is learned from the Apostle which says that you have to bring Bikurim in Meiratius Kalpariha from the first of all the fruit of the ground. And the Apostle didn't say you should bring the first fruit of the ground. It said you should bring from the first fruit of the ground. And we learn from there that you do not need to bring every first fruit of the ground, rather only some of the fruit, namely these seven fruit. Now another thing which is learned from the word Rishis, which means first, so that also implies that it is the first quality, that it is good quality. So fruit which are very, very bad quality, such as Lomitamorim Shebehorim, you wouldn't need to bring Bekurim from dates which grow in the mountains, more from produce which grows in valleys, because in general that was very bad quality, and that would not come under the category of racious. And on a similar note, one would not bring Bikurim from olives which are designated for producing oil. If they are not of the best quality, or at least good quality, then they do not come under the obligation of Bikurim. The Yerushalmi explains that only such olives which would keep the oil within them, even when it rains, only those are considered very good quality, such that they would be obligated in Bikurim. Now what about the timing? Says the Mishnah, One cannot bring Bikurim before the Yom Tov of Shavuos, and we'll explain the reason for that at the end of the Mishnah, The people who came from Hard Tzavoyim, the mountain of Tzavoyim, which is an area of Eretz Yisrael, They brought their Bikurim fruits before Shavuos to the Beis HaMikdash, but the Koyanim in the Beis HaMikdash did not accept them from them, because it was not yet the time. Now why can you only bring Bikurim from Shavuos onwards? Because of the Pasuk in the Torah which says The festival of the harvesting which refers to Shavuos The first fruit of your works, such as Chizra Basodeh, which you'll plant in the field. And what the Torah is referring to when it says your first produce, as it is clear from the context over there, is the Shtei Alechem, which is the offering of two loaves of bread which are brought on Shavuos, and it calls the Shtei Alechem your first produce, which implies that the first produce which is used, which is brought in the Beit HaMikdash, needs to be the She'alechem. So if you bring your Bikurim before Shavuos, that means you're bringing produce into the Beis HaMikdash before the She'alechem. But since the She'alechem need to be the first, one can only bring the Bikurim after the She'alechem have been brought on Shavuos. So we've now reached the end of the list of people and different situations in which Bikurim is not brought at all. And in the next Mishnah we will list cases in which Bikurim is brought, but the Mikra Bikurim is not said together with that.